Hi everyone! Today on What's My Frame, I'm chatting with casting director Alexis Allen Winter. Alexis started as an assistant in the Southeast Market on productions like One Tree Hill with the Van Cannons, Eastbound and Down, and We're the Millers starring Jennifer Aniston. She made the move to Los Angeles in 2012, working with casting powerhouses like Larry Mayfield, Rich D'Elia, Courtney Bright, and Tamara Notka. Alexis is currently working on five films slated for 2021, including Die in a Gunfight starring Diego Bonetta. Alexis has been a champion for diversity and equality in casting since the start. One of the most notable examples is her work in Netflix's critically acclaimed film, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. You can also see her beautiful work in Legion, Iron Fist, and Luke Cage. Alexis is passionate about actors, diversity in casting, and creating a more efficient casting process that benefits everyone, while bringing her industry into the 21st century by utilizing the technology tools that are at our fingertips. Please join me in welcoming Alexis Allen Winter. Hey Alexis, thank you so much for joining us on What's My Frame. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you start us off with your journey into casting? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I never really meant to get into casting. It, I was living in North Carolina and I was actually riding horses professionally. So I um, had a friend, Kim Stewart, and she was doing extras casting for One Tree Hill with the Thin Cannon down in Wilmington, North Carolina, and she was getting married. And so they wanted some extra help. And I had sort of been working as an extra and like helping here and there, but it was my first time really like being in the office and working in a casting environment for like more than a day or two at a time. And I fell in love with it. And um, when she quit that job to continue on her other, her other job, I sort of came in and they offered me the job and I, and I, did it and I was doing One Tree Hill and Eastbound and Down and I, I just loved it. And that office was very unique because um, the film community down there is so small. So I was like involved in um, like a casting assistant capacity as well. Like we were helping to run sessions and uh, it really was educational in the industry itself. And because it was so tight knit and lovely, yeah. I just fell in love with it. I think if I'd started anywhere else, I wouldn't have been as lucky. Um, and so from there I ended up doing a lot of extras work through the Finn Cannons when they sort of stopped handling extras. So I went to New Orleans and did the extras for um, Ender's Game, which itself was also very unique because um, a lot of the extras had to stay there for like, they were basically like day players because it was all contained in one ship in space. So the extras were there for the entire shoot schedule. Uh, and then when I left there, I ended up coming to uh, LA because North Carolina's film incentives got cut and we know how that went. So I came out to LA and started working in, central casting and I just did not like it. And then I came, uh, started working in, again as a casting assistant because I found that capacity much more fitting for me. Yeah. And then the natural succession from there was to go and become an associate. And then um, through some wonderful bosses like Tamara Notcut, I ended up getting a couple casting gigs on my own and that sort of has evolved. And so now I'm doing that more than full time. <laughs> Amazing. and. As a, a former Southeast resident myself and knowing that market as well, I kind of want to just dive right in and discuss yeah. having worked and lived in that market, both in, you know, North Carolina and, and New Orleans and, um, you know, Atlanta's kind of the, the major hub now and now working yourself in LA for actors that are listening that are contemplating a move to one of the minor markets or the major markets. Do you have any advice on how to map out that course of where to move when? Yeah, I mean, it's a question we get a lot. Um, yeah. I teach at a couple classes here in LA and questions based around a lot, like when should I move? Um, 
my opinion is this, and I think that a lot of casting directors probably would agree with it out here in LA, is if you're doing really well in the Southeast and you're booking consistent guest co-star day player type roles, I would stay there for as long as you can um, and then make the move here when you feel like you're getting more um, prominent roles, such as recurring or um, yeah. coveted series regular. But I, I think that a lot of what's happening in LA and what we're seeing is things don't really shoot here consistently enough to keep a lot of actors full-time employed. We go to places like Atlanta or like Vancouver or wherever, and I'm sure you know this, this is where we hire the local actors. So for people that are here to be actors, I think it's um, it makes sense to really get a resume that's competitive before you make the move to LA. We just don't have enough local casting to hire everybody that lives here. So. I think it's, and I, and I would also argue to stay SAG eligible for as long as possible before joining. Yeah. Um, you know, most commercials are non-union and that becomes a lot of the bread and butter in between acting gigs. So that's my advice. I mean, I can go into much more depth than that, but generally the move to LA should be when you're really like outgrowing your local market. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of actors jump past because they, mm -hmm. they want to get their card as soon as possible. They want to make the move because New York and LA are like the places and yeah. mm -hmm. right now especially with what the economy is going to be looking like it's yeah. harder to stay you know keep your money right and continue to work where you're actually getting some work yeah I agree now you and your team won an RDS award in 2020 for to all the boys I've loved before which the original movie and the sequel are both fan favorites on Netflix can you tell us a little of the behind the scenes of the casting process of the original film Yes. So um, my boss, Tamara Nutcut, who I um, always herald as being one of the biggest advocates for diversity in casting, and she's taught me so much in that aspect. That film was like a prime example of, uh, you know, coming in as casting for a voice for diversity. It's an entire Asian American cast, and it was such a cool experience for us to be able to like bring in these actors who, um, you know, an entire the entire sister, like the three sisters that were the main characters, you know, they're all Asian American. And so it was really fun for us to be able to like bring in actors for lead roles that specifically may not have ever been able to do like an entire cast in that um, demographic. So it, that part was really empowering, I think, to have not only young women, but young diverse women carrying this entire movie and, um, giving them that voice from their perspective, I think is always really important coming from, I'm a white female, so I always like to, you know, use whatever platform we can to start speaking into the diverse circles and, and bringing about that change in casting. Um, so to see an entire movie written from that perspective and being able to be a small part of that as a casting associate, it was just really educational for me specifically. Um, uh, Tamara was so good about making sure that we were very authentic to the script into the story to the book the original story was a book so um it was an it was like and I was pregnant at the time and like it just felt very very female centric and very powerful I was really excited to be on that and when we were first on it it was being um created by awesomeness tv and we had a really cool group of producers were all women and our director was a woman Susan and um um so we we just had this really cool female powerful voice behind all of it and and then Netflix bought it, which is really exciting for everybody. I mean, it just became this really cool story of like this small indie becoming this huge fan favorite on Netflix. So it was yeah. really fun. 
So it actually was made and then purchased by Netflix versus mm -hmm. being made for Netflix. Awesome. Yes, when we were on it, Netflix wasn't yet involved. So we were very much like in an indie world creating it. It was really cool. Which I think sometimes you get to speak a little bit more to uh, the craft and the, the diversity in the characters, which is actually a topic we're hearing a lot about right now is the importance of diversity in casting, which just like you're saying, has been a longstanding value in your casting. How do you see we as an industry, how can we improve representing all voices? Um, another thing, again, I've learned from people like Tamara Notcut and Rich D'Elia, um, you know, we have this position as casting directors where I think that a lot of our, my industry comrades can, can speak to this too. Um, the younger generation coming up, I think, is becoming much more of a voice in the process of the production process and the, and the entire um, overall uh, film creation aspect of it. So we're not just here to show you auditions and have you say yes or no. I mean, I think that's a mentality that really does a disservice to our, our department and our industry. We have a really powerful position in, in the filmmaking world. So a lot of times on indies, I, I might be brought on along with just two other producers or a producer and a director. I mean, it's very rare in the indie world that I'm brought on and there's already an entire production staff. So we're in the very early stages and like we're going over the script and there's a huge creative input coming from my department in the characters. So especially from Tamara, I've seen her talking with producers and directors and writers and they change a person's gender or they change a person's um, ethnicity because they want to speak more to diversity. And I think that's such an important way to use our, um, our, our voice in this creative endeavor is to just erase the 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 directives that were given a lot. So when we release a breakdown, like let's just not put an ethnicity or a gender on this role. It doesn't matter to the story. Let's just not put an ethnicity or gender. It can be a man or woman. It can be non-binary. It can be anything we want it to be. So just leave it open. So I think I'm seeing that more and more from casting. Like let's release these breakdowns and not pigeonhole them into a certain demographic. Let it be a man or a woman or trans man, trans woman, gay, straight, it doesn't matter, like non-binary. It's just, not, let's not put a label on it. And when we started doing that, we started seeing such cool um, um, submissions being made by agents and managers and just a lot more open to our creative input. You know, it's, it, it becomes a, a less pigeonholed department that we're in at that point. Yeah. Now I can only imagine knowing the numbers just that you know float around of you know three to six thousand submissions per role anyway when you have pretty firm specs I can only imagine the, the number how that grows have you experienced in your office that they tend to look at just the pitches from like set like letter agencies or are they have they been like combing through to find the hidden gems throughout all of the submissions um speaking for the offices I've worked in uh, I've, we've never um, filtered that way. There's not really a way to anymore anyway. Okay. So it's kind of cool in that way. So if we have 3,000 submissions, we actually look through all 3,000 submissions, <laughs> um, which is why the process, it, yeah, so that's a lot. <laughs> so it's like 30 pages because there's like 100 a page. So we, you know, we take breaks, we get through it, we label them based on, you know, who, who would be like straight to call back if it's a bigger name or, um, you know, we have different ways of sort of getting through the submissions in a way that makes the most sense for our time. 
um, which is another part of the casting process that I think people don't understand is a lot of times our department only has two, maybe three people if you include an assistant, which we don't really get anymore. Um, and then we're, we're also on, on calls with producers and directors. We're also going through email pitches. We're also calling with directors and, I'm sorry, with um, agents and managers. We're also, um, you know, making lists on our, on our computers. We're dealing with phone calls. We're dealing with auditions. So there's so much in our day that besides auditions that um, as technology helps us see more and more actors virtually, it's just you know, self-tapes have become a larger part of our process just out of necessity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we go through every single submission. Amazing. Well, that's something to be very, very <laughs> respected. I can't even imagine. You also champion for actors and the importance of technology. Self-tapes are something that we're seeing more and more of and are becoming a part of actors' weekly or even daily life. What makes a strong and standout performance for you in a self-tape? And then also, what are some common mistakes that you see made that we can tighten up on and work on ourselves as actors? Um, yeah, that's a really great question. I'm really passionate about seeing um, technology become a bigger part of our process. Again, just because of the time limits in our day, but also because as we continue on into the 21st century and beyond, we're only gonna see more of this happen where less actors are able to see um, casting directors in person. Mm. So um, the way I've tried to make sure that actors know that self-tapes are just as important to us as coming in in person is I've started showing sort of from my perspective what I see when people are submitting these to us. Mm. And so um, what the most, most important thing to me has become is that your lighting is good and that your camera is good. And be luckily, because of technology, again, iPhones now, look better than most cameras you can go out and buy. And so as long as you have like a cute tripod, I always say cute because it's like this little $13 tripod that I recommend everybody gets with like the grippy legs. Um, and then like a little ring light that hooks to your, your laptop or your phone. I mean, that's really all you need. I always recommend having a reader. Mm -hmm. In the event that you get like a last minute self tape and you don't have a roommate or someone available, you can always get an app that like allows you to record your own voice as your reader. Yeah. Um, so I think there's always ways to make a self-tape happen. As long as I can see you and hear you, and even if it's your own voice recorded, it doesn't really matter to me as much as being able to see that you can act. I'm not going to be using this self-tape for like a network test. You know, this is just for me to see that you can act. Yeah. And so a lot of times the note I get from, from like agents and managers and actors is like, well, what if I don't get the character right? And it's like, yeah, that's a very valid argument. But here's the thing, if, if you can act, then I can give you a note and have you either retape or bring you in for an in-person callback with these notes and be able to direct you in the room. And that's the point of a callback is to bring back the people that I think are the most fitting for the role and then kind of work with them a little more in the room. So um, that's the goal for me is to see who can act, even if they get the character and the tone totally wrong. And then I can bring you in and that's what a callback is for. Um, and then as far as like seeing somebody improve I think that what I'm seeing a lot is um, people trying a little too hard to make their tape stand out when that's not what we need we just need to see that you can do the part yeah so um, things like um, over-the-top theatrics or like too many props and set design I mean things that can come across as um, distracting and it's not always fun to have in there <laughs> So uh, while entertaining, it can take away from the fact that you can act or not. So I think I think just keeping the basics there and making sure you have good lighting, a natural light, a window, and maybe a ring light. 
all things you can get for like $15 and set up yourself. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of times any actor that didn't come up from a theater background, you kind of lose sight of the comparison of self-tapes are very much like doing a play in a black box theater. <laughs> and just that creating magic with very limited, but as long as you can still sell the star with very limited, you know, props and accoutrements, you know, it, mm -hmm. that's actually better than, you know, filming in your kitchen or doing, you know, some of these quarantine things that we've had a little too much time on our hands and got a little too creative. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great though, you know, I think that being able to have a self-tape last minute, which happens, I mean, my husband's an actor and I've seen it from his point of view too, like he might get a self-tape request at seven at night that's due by 10 a.m. the next day. So you do what you can with what you have and um, luckily, you know, you can make things look good with an iPhone and good lighting, so. We're lucky we live in 2020 with these problems. <laughs> That's something you haven't heard recently. <laughs> We've worked in a number of high-profile and really respected offices and know from the inside what works and what slows down the process of casting. What parts can actors take responsibility for in improving the efficiency of the casting process? Like, how can we be more um, useful and like how can we utilize our materials to be more of service for the casting process? I think a lot of what actors do are very useful. I feel like the acting community in general is very respectful of the process and very open to listening and direction. Um, a lot of times what we seem to find the most difficult is dealing with the agent and representation side and not necessarily in a negative way. It's just because the industries, our industry and their industry works at such different speeds and in different ways. So they're very actor facing and we're very production facing. The only time we're actor facing is during audition. So um, a lot of our directives come from production and, and we're on their timeline. Mm -hmm. So if we're like rushing through something and, and agents are asking us to fit their people into these in-person auditions and we're like, look, we literally don't have the time. It's mostly self tapes. And then we get the argument of like, this is really disrespectful to my client. And I'm just like, it's, it's not, it's really not. We're trying our best to see like 300 people for this role yeah. and we want to see your client. And that's why it's a self tape. That's been a major step for me personally in this process is just helping to educate the representation side of why we do what we do. And it, none of it's meant to disrespect an actor in any way. Um, but yeah, I think the actors are very aware of, of, you know, the acting community in general is just very receptive. Yeah. They're used to taking direction. So it's no question, okay, I park here and I show up at this time and these are the sides I bring and you don't need a headshot. Like they always seem like they, they kind of get it when we let lay it out for them. So yes. I feel like all of the marks on the floors through quarantine, like the social distancing, <laughs> it was like every actor was like, it kind of feels like we're on set, like we've been training for, for years, guys. I'm just like, you want me to stand here while you check out the groceries? You got it. So true. Math, gloves, yeah. got it. That's my wardrobe. I'm good. <laughs> you gotta laugh at it. Otherwise, you have to. <laughs> we're all going a little bit crazy. <laughs> just a little bit. Um, now you worked on the Nun, and as I say the title, I'm sure you folks just felt like the hair on their neck stand up. <laughs> actors coming in for those hugely popular, very stylized and kind of extreme projects. What advice would you have on where to place their focus when preparing the materials and what part to, you know, trust and believe that everybody that's on the other side of the table knows that it's, it's going to be their day of? And the well, with those kind of roles, and that was with Rich D'Elia, who is very well-versed in that world. He's, that's sort of his niche. Um, so that was another really hugely educational experience for me working in such a thriller 
world. I mean, that film was terrifying and, um, and the script was no less scary to read. And so we, you know, the roles we had to look for, one of them was more of like a goofy, the French guy, he was like kind of more goofy comedic. So that was a little easier and straightforward in the audition process. Cause we literally just wanted to see him playing like a, this guy. But as for the nun and, and the, um, the actual role we were looking for. I mean, the girl herself, the whole time, she's just terrified. So in the audition, in the room, a lot of it was reacting to like noise and jump scares. And so she was doing a lot of screaming and praying in Latin and all these things that nobody does on a daily basis. <laughs> so because of that, we did a lot of those in person. I mean, it was just really necessary to that role to see those girls in person. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Tessa ended up getting the role and we, we saw her in person and, and she was just so, so good. I mean, for a role like that to feel grounded is really kind of crazy to think about, but she really did bring this nice grounded um, place to this role that's very, very scared for a lot of, a lot of the audition mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the, the praying in Latin and in all this and so we're very specific we're like you know maybe just wear like a collared shirt because we know not everybody has a nun wardrobe or or like a habit they can wear <laughs> um so it was a very unique experience I've never had to do auditions like that and I was like you know uh in my first trimester of my pregnancy like fighting nausea as we're doing <laughs> these auditions I brought this whole other level to it for me it was it was really fun. Like I look back on that whole process with a lot of um, fondness because I was like pregnant with my first kid and very excited and also nauseous. And then like <laughs> this really cool role that we got to bring in such incredible actors for because it was such like a, um, a lead role. Mm -hmm. It was, it was really fun. It was a really great, great experience. Amazing. And now going off of that, I love the stories that some casting directors have of spotting that future star when they walk into the room before like they've been put in that project that just like blows them up or being in the room when the person that ultimately is going to get it walks in and then it's like you see the character for the first time after you've actually seen the same sides a hundred times. Um, do you have any of those kind of stories that you'd be willing to share? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a movie that's not out yet, so I can't, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it because none of it's been announced, but um, uh, a lot of times I end up casting projects that work with minors mm. and the nature of a minor is that they haven't been acting for very long because they haven't been alive for very long so a lot of times like these kids come in and you're like oh that that's a star in the making you just you just kind of know mm. um one kid that we brought in years ago for another project that has since been made home again with Reese Witherspoon it we she didn't end up getting the role but I I loved her so much and it was ever Mila Jovovich's daughter Okay. And she was much younger at the time, but she, you know, she has since like done covers for magazines and she's like modeled and acted, but she was just, and I'm sure it's also because of who her mother is, but she was just so incredibly, um, grounded and like, she was a kid. She wasn't coached. She was just a kid in the room playing pretend, which is the ultimate goal with the child actor. You don't want to see somebody who's coached and does the same thing 20 times. You want to see a kid who you can kind of play with in the room and they can change the way that they react. Yeah. And that was very much her. And of course, you know, you, you see who her mother is. And you're like, of course you're talented. Like a certain point, it has to be a little bit genetic, right? Yeah. Um, but she was incredible. And, and the kids who ended up coming on to home again were, again, those children that I was like, oh my gosh, they just really, they're just playing pretend. 
that's what we all want to do with this. And these kids are bringing that to it, which is really fun. But um, another person who is extremely famous is Darren Chris. And I always talk about how much I love bringing him in the room. This was like 2015. He's already famous, you know, Glee and all of that. But um, seeing him then do um, Versace and all these other roles since then, you're like, yeah, of course he's doing those things. Of course he's doing musical theater. He's incredibly talented across all boards. Um, but having him come in for these auditions before he was on Versace and all these things, I just knew he had other things that he was capable of that he was just going to keep going and keep exploding and, and going. But he's one of the most pleasant people I've ever had in the room and just an overall sweetheart. That's amazing. Now, have you had a mentor or someone who has shaped your work and perspective on casting? It's all of the amazing voices you've already worked with. Um, absolutely. I mean, Tamara Notcut is like my idol. I just, I love her. She's an icon. I think she's such a strong female voice. And um, she's also still like super, she, you know, we work hard, but she's also one of those people that like enjoys our industry. Like she's very good about being very present in like premieres and parties and like going out and she has a lot of actor friends and um, she just does it right. You know, she's just like, she's just so cool. And then Rich D'Elia, who I, I just think he's like one of the sweetest people to ever exist. And same, he always champions his associates and his assistants and he's very supportive and, um, bring such an important voice to the casting world. And he was also an associate and, you know, like these people that have come up through the ranks. And so they understand the entire process of casting. And then the Finn Cannons in the Southeast really taught me a lot about local casting and how important it was to, um, you know, be an advocate for your local community and your local acting yeah. uh, groups. And then uh, Lorraine Mayfield taught me a lot about self tapes because that's kind of all she does for pre-read. So that was really educational for me to learn that, we don't have to be in session all day, every day. <laughs> like we can get other things done and then still see 300 actors. It's, mm -hmm. So everybody kind of brings something different. Um, I, think every, I think every office has taught me something incredibly valuable. It's like all these little puzzle pieces I'm accumulating to sort of put my own, <laughs> my own picture together. It's like, it kind of feels like you're on your way to your own office. <laughs> kind of just a little bit like that. And like a really great office too. Um, now you spent a good deal of your time teaching actors. I'd love to know like what put it on your heart that that was something you wanted to do and give back in that way. But also what advice do you give your students working to build their resumes? I do love teaching. Um, I love being accessible and being able to access uh, local actors. I think it's really important that they see how our process works because I think it helps their process. For whatever reason, and I talk about this a lot, it always feels like um, the casting director world is very secretive, but we're not really secretive. I think we're just a little bit inaccessible. And I think that's also sort of changing now as we come into the world of social media and we all have accounts and, um, so I, I just really like learning from actors. I like learning where their hardships lie, where their strengths are, where they feel like we can help them. But I also like teaching them our process so that they're better prepared um, and can advocate for themselves either on their own or through their agents and managers. So a lot of advice that I find myself teaching is uh, beyond how to join SAG, like I think everybody kind of has those questions. <laughs> but at the point where you're a working union actor, um, I think a lot of the things I find myself teaching are like headshots, um, you know, things to keep your resume up to date, how, where to go for training and 
things like that. But you know, there's like different groups. So there are the actors who are still non-union. There are the actors who are SAG eligible. There are the actors who are still working co-star and guest star. And then we have the other groups that are like, okay, now how do I go and get recurring in series regular and, and lead roles? Different groups kind of all have different questions, but you know, it, it's all very similar in the fact that they want to know how our process is mm. um, and, and what we can do to help them, you know, be better advocates for their community as well. Absolutely. Now, what are your views on the importance and effects of social media for actors? Because everyone has a different uh, stance on social media and branding and what the future casting kind of looks like in that element. Yeah, um, you know, I think, I think reality casting probably has a different point of view than I do on this, but I, I, I don't really place a lot of stock in people's social media. Um, the only time it's really come up for me is when we're doing indies and it helps to have marketing and that always helps to have the actors sort of um, blast outs in social media. Yeah. So people with a large following help in that way, but uh, it, for me, it's not a criteria for getting a role. Mm -hmm. And the only time we ever look at it is for research <laughs> onto the actor themselves. You're such an advocate for actors. If you could pull each actor aside right before walking into the room, what advice would you give them? If I saw each actor before they came in the room? If you were able to just pull them aside and say uh -huh. just a couple of words, what would you tell them? I would tell them we're on their side. You know, we want you to get this. We don't want you to fail. We're not here to make fun of you. I think a lot of actors come into the room thinking we're like judging them when we're, we're on your side. It makes us easier if every actor comes in the room and like knocks it out of the park and we have like 20 people to choose from. Um, and, and if they totally blow their first take, we can do another one. And sometimes you totally nail it on your first take and that's fine. I think a lot of actors and what I hear as the feedback from a lot of actors is like, well, if I only get one take, does that mean I totally blew it? And I'm like, no, not necessarily, and not for me. If I, if I tell you you got it in one take, it means like, cool, good, let's move on. I mean, I'm not here to like blow you off. Yeah. So um, I think, I think um, a lot of times what people hear from other places aren't always you know, reflective of our process. Yeah. All right, last question that we ask everyone on the podcast is what is one thing you would go back and tell your younger self? Um, to be patient. Mm -hmm. I think in another 10 years, I'll tell myself the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of keep moving the line in the industry. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun to be here. And um, I really like you know, your whole format that you've got going. I listened to your other podcast with hashtag booked and I thought that was so cool. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining us. And to my guest today, Alexis Allen Wintour. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe and tell a friend. Our goal at What's My Frame is to encourage, educate, and inspire a creative community. I am so grateful for each and every one of you that has tuned in each week and continues to support the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at What's My Frame, for daily blogs, artist resources, and encouragement. I'm Laura Linda Bradley, and this is What's My Frame.